we dealt with so much just a lot <laughs> emails messages texts posts comments dms like all the things and then it stopped you want to know when it stopped for a whole week during the insurrection so they were busy so they were busy one in the same it's not a van it's one circle and then it picked right back up when the insurrection was over and welcome ladies and gentlemen boys and girls guys gals and non-binary pals to another episode of all the above the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. This is now year 18 in the classroom. And Jeff, I wanna emphasize, in the classroom. This is our first video episode, our first video episode in several weeks. And that's all because of the adjustment of going back to school and getting back to to in-person instruction and um, it's hard, man. It's hard. It's quite <laughs> difficult. How are you feeling today, Jeff? Uh, oh, I will. I <laughs> I will be lying if I said I was not tired. Um, <laughs> yes, in my in my district as well. We started school uh, this past week, or I guess I should say, uh, so folks know, we started school the week of August sixteenth, uh, and um, you know, hit the ground running that Monday with all the kids coming back. Um, you know, all of the COVID safety measures uh, in place, which I have to, you know, give some props to uh, Los Angeles Unified School District for doing uh, what I think is probably the most robust job of COVID safety protocols of any large district in the country that I'm familiar with, at least. And, um, you know, it was it was a lot of work, uh, <laughs> you know, being uh, at school sites, getting up early man it's been a while man well <laughs> since that alarm clock has gone off and it's been like five zero zero on the on the clock and it's been a long time since i've had to leave the house while there's still a six on the clock in order to uh you know beat traffic and ride for 45 minutes and get to school and whoo yes um Tired, man. I'm, you know, I'm out of practice. <laughs> <laughs> same, man. Same. We got to get back into that teacher shape, that educator shape, that early in the morning, get to school and all that, all that. Um, quite, quite challenging. And we know we're not the only ones uh, going through that. So shout out to all of y'all who have recently went back to um, in-person instruction or in-person whatever, whatever it is you're doing. And uh, yeah, man, it's, it's here. It's here. And Jeff, um, you know, our show, our show here has continued through the summer and we had a bunch of dope guests and we had a, a bunch of dope topics that we covered. And if anybody is listening to us right now for the first time and you're like, yo, what's, you know, what I miss, what I miss, all that is at our website, aotashow.com. And definitely, definitely, we very much appreciate your thumbs up and reviews and all that good stuff. And also just, we want to say, you know, have a super dope, awesome school year for those of you who are, who are educators, just fantastic school year ahead despite all the challenges and there are many challenges out there that we are facing right now but for this episode jeff what is on the agenda what are we going to be exploring well man well as usual we got a good one for everybody and um i you know i think it's funny that you mentioned at the beginning uh this is your 18th year in the classroom because um our guest for today's seminar is um, you know a person who not only has 
uh, also a wealth of experience in the classroom, but has a new book coming out um, about some of the, um, I guess, more like holistic, rich aspects of teaching, of bringing to life culturally sustaining, culturally affirming spaces um, in the classroom for our students and someone who has been, frankly, a lightning rod um, in this national insanity we are uh, we are experiencing right now around you know so-called uh, critical race theory and CRT and, and all of that. Um, she is Lorena Herman, um, coming to us uh, all the way from from Tampa, Florida. Um, but you may recognize her name from uh, events with Educolor, um, from Disrupt Texts, where she was a, a co-founder, and she's going to be with us today to really unpack some of these issues around what she calls textured teaching um, and bring it to life culturally sustaining practices in the classroom. Yeah, that sounds super dope. Cannot wait for that conversation. A whole bunch of dopeness, whole bunch of dopeness on the way. But first, folks, is the do now. Let's take a look at some recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, uh, today we are, since it's the beginning of the school year here uh, in Southern California, we, uh, we got to get that roster straightened out, Manuel. We got to see who's in the house, see who is physically present here in school. So we got a roll call today, Manuel. Time for taking a little attendance. All right. Taking attendance. Jeff, now, uh, attendance at the beginning of the school year always is challenging because it's all new names and new faces. And let me tell you, getting to know students' names when they're also wearing masks <laughs> is um, yes. a new level of challenge that I had not anticipated. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. and even just walking around campus and, you know, I, I'm saying hi to every student out there because I just don't know if they're in my class or not and I don't want to be rude, but I just cannot tell one from the other, man. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. It's difficult, especially, you know, because it's like subtle differences in a kid's face, right? Yeah. Where like if you have a slightly smaller face and the mask covers like everything but the eyeball, yeah. you know, there's like no features, to, you know, you're, you're like trying to memorize forehead wrinkles or something. Yeah, man. Uh, and then you got hairstyles, I guess, you know, it's like I, there's no distinguishing features. It's just like a surgical mask. And you know, and a shirt. Right? For real, <laughs> like, there's nothing, nothing else. Yeah. For real, and at the yeah, high school level, tough. some students are really leaning into like the the anonymity that a mask can bring. So like you know, combing mm -hmm. the hair for those who have like bangs or something, like combing it way down and have the mask way up by the eyes, and it's just like, mm. I, I just that's, I that's could the not new point you out the hoodie lineup. over your over your head. <laughs> yeah, and especially yeah, if they got a hat or a hoodie on, it's just like uh, okay, I. I won't know your name for quite a while. I will try. Seating charts help. Seating charts help. Shout yeah. out to uh, Two Dope Teachers uh, for that tweet the other day. All right, anyways, we, man, we got roll call, man. Let's go, let's go. Uh, first name on the list, on the roster is Culver City. Oh, okay. All right. I see you. I see you, Culver City, in the building. Um, yeah, man. I love Culver City. Uh, you know, I, I don't go down there so much anymore, but actually... The um, one of the co-founders of the show with us a few years back, um, William Abani. Shout out to uh, Abani, uh, who moved on to uh, to Texas, um, but used to used to live in Culver City. So we had some of the early planning meetings for this show. Yeah, uh, in Culver City at, at a Starbucks in Culver City. Had you heard of Culver City before you moved to California, Jeff? I'm just curious. 
You know, actually I had, but um, but that's because I, my first job out of college, Manuel, this is a little walk down memory lane, was being a college admissions officer. And part of the territory that I recruited was Southern California. So I had actually been to Culver City and, and uh, you know visited some schools in the area. Um, I think I might've even stayed at a hotel in Culver City one time. So I was okay. aware, but that is to say, I was aware because I had work here, not because Culver City is, you know, maybe like a, a national name. Even though there's there's a bunch of movie studios. Yeah, a bunch of studios, are, yeah. Yeah, down there. So so it might be out there in the Hollywood ether, so to speak. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And if anybody's watching this show who's not familiar with California, yeah, Culver City, a little, little, little town that is uh, surrounded by Los Angeles, like on any direction you go is is Los Angeles for the most part, but a little pocket known for its uh, history and, and movie studios and stuff like that. So in any case, that brings us to our first story, Jeff. Culver City has its own school district. So even though it's surrounded by LA, it's not part of LA Unified School District. It has its own school district. And this story comes to us by way of EdSource through some reporting by Diana Lambert and Ali Tadayan. And they report that Culver City Unified, which is, as we said, located in Los Angeles County, in the Western part of Los Angeles County, recently announced that all eligible students will soon be required to be vaccinated against COVID-19, along, of course, with teachers and staff. The district's 7,000 students recently returned to school and none have been immediately barred from attending for being unvaccinated, but the district is giving students and staff until November 19th to show proof of vaccination. Families who fail to comply by that date will have to enroll their children in independent study. Culver City Unified just might be the first school district in California to require all eligible students to be vaccinated, vaccinated against COVID-19. And it joins the state of California and a growing number of cities and universities and private companies that are requiring their employees or students to be vaccinated. As of the time of this recording here, it seems that this is the only district so far to require that students get vaccinated and district officials say that they took into consideration the fact that the University of California school system is requiring all of its students to be vaccinated. And many of those students at the, at the UC level aren't much older than the high school students. Although the list of immunizations that are required for public school enrollment in California is determined at the state level, and that's typically not left for individual school districts to decide, California's superintendent of public instruction, Tony Thurman, applauded the district for its decision to mandate vaccines and said he wouldn't mind if more districts followed suit. So, Jeff, what are your thoughts on us... Um, Stripping away everyone's freedom and microchipping our kids, Jeff. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, here's, here's the irony of that statement, Manuel. And anyone who's worried about microchipping your kids, I'm sorry, you're too late. Because your too child has, has the, most, the world's most sophisticated tracking device that not only tells the corporate overlords where they are at any given point in time, but also is capturing every waking thought of that young person that they are unfilteringly pumping into these social media machines on all of the platforms, the platforms that you as a grown adult don't even know exist right now. They are pumping their deepest thoughts into those apps as well. 
So I'm not here for anybody talking utterly stupidly about we're putting microchips in children. The kids already have microchips in them. Well, maybe not in them, but on them like 23 and a half hours a day. Okay, so calm, calm that down immediately. Um, but here's the deal, Manuel. I love this story. I think it's a fantastic development. And I say that as a person who definitely comes to the table with a certain degree of uh, of skepticism, not a certain degree, with a high degree of skepticism of pharmaceutical companies in particular, um, and definitely wanting to be sure that especially when we're talking about children, we're erring on the side of caution, okay? Now, the reality is, uh, you know, do we have longitudinal data on vaccines to know that on these particular vaccines, I should say, to know that, you know, 25 years from now, you're not going to grow a mushroom out of your forehead. Of course not, because we they have not existed for 25 years. But the reality is there is such an infinitesimally small chance that something like that is going to happen. There are hundreds of millions of people walking around this country. I shouldn't say hundreds, but over a hundred million people walking around this country now who've had multiple vaccine shots and are just fine. Right. And the very, very tiny number of people that had an adverse reaction to the vaccine you know, is of course unfortunate, but frankly, you could inject, you know, 100 million people with saline and a few of them are going to have an adverse reaction, Manuel. And the reality is with the Delta variant being present now, being the dominant variant, being demonstrated to be more contagious, much more contagious than the prior alpha variant, demonstrated to be um, more virulent with younger people, including, you know, young children, and right now, with our pediatric ICU units across the, in many places across the country being full, the reality is the benefits of vaccination dramatically outweigh the, um, the risks or the costs of vaccination. And I think um, as we do with measles, as we do with mumps, as we do with, you know, pertussis and whooping cough and all these other, you know, smallpox, polio, all the things we've either eradicated virtually over the years or um, continue to mandate vaccinations for today, which we do in schools across the country today, um, it is just time to add the COVID-19 vaccine to the list. I love that Culver City is out front on this. I hope that other districts will follow suit. And frankly, I hope the FDA makes a smart decision around um, giving full approval um, for childhood vaccination and at least that they're making room for uh, you know, for very expansive continued trials for younger children as well, because right now we don't have any kids under the age of 12 vaccinated in this country, and that's a huge risk right now. So I love it. Props to Culver City. Um, even though you're kind of bougie and you and you don't want to be a part of L.A., I see you, you know, it's cool. <laughs> I, I respect you for this decision. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. And I think it's a very bold step. I, I, Obviously, right now, like so many different companies and counties and, and other entities are implementing these these so-called vaccine mandates. So maybe it's not as bold as it would have been if they had done this like before this current wave of so many different uh, bodies implementing mandates. But it's still a very bold step because no other district in California, at least at the time of this recording, ha has done this. So that's big time. And although we keep it student centered here on all the above, my reaction to the story is, is really teacher-centered. And as a high school teacher, I am on my feet from 8.30 to 3.40. 
And there are so many young people in and out of my classroom, so many teenagers in and out of my classroom. My largest classes this year so far right now are around 37 students. And let me tell you, like, I, I am just assuming it's just, just the reality of interacting with so many people all day in a small room and my class is fogging up and all that stuff. Like, I'm just assuming if there were or if there becomes a presence of this Delta variance in my room, like I, I fully expect that it's gonna spread despite us having masks on because of the closeness, the proximity, and just the reality of trying to wear this mask all day. Like I'm fiddling with it. I'm trying to like clear out my glasses and, and you know, for anybody out there like, oh, you gotta do the anti-fog stuff in your glasses or put the glasses over the mask, all that stuff. I've tried all that. I tried all that. Yeah. It's still a problem. Yeah. Um, so I'm just, in my head, I'm thinking like, wow, if, if we did have this mandate, if I knew for a fact that all of my students were vaccinated, I will feel so much better in the classroom, not just for me, but for other teachers as well. There's a teacher that I know who has a new grandchild and that teacher is really struggling to visit this infant because the teacher knows that like, it's likely that with this Delta variant, like if it's around, if it shows up in our school, our own little masks aren't gonna stop it probably because of the, the nature of the interactions that we have with our students. And you know, that, that teacher's missing a lot of time with this, this infant grandchild because they don't wanna you know, carry something. And it would just go, it would mean a lot. It would mean a lot to know that every eligible student has the vaccine. It would mean a lot for our own safety as, as teachers, not to be teacher center, but of course also the students and, and what they take home to their families all of that, like I'm with it. And the problem, Jeff, not the problem, but a problem that I see here is that the controversy around a mandate like this, we would have seen this for all those other vaccines that you mentioned, going all the way back to smallpox and polio, all of that stuff. Like if we were to relitigate all of those, I think we we would see the same like level of fury over like, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this? So I'm really concerned that we've reached a point in our existence here where the misinformation, disinformation, and just like refusal to consider the health of others has reached a point where now something that to me is, is as necessary as this COVID-19 vaccine is just riddled with controversy and I don't see an end to it in sight. So yeah, shout out to Culver City for sure. And shout out to those teachers in Culver City who hopefully uh, come November 19th can feel a little bit better about how packed the classrooms are, uh, knowing that the students in the classrooms are, are vaccinated. And also there's the independent study option. So anybody that's like, oh, but you're withholding education from my kid. No, they could they, still students in Culver City, but they'll do the online stuff until they get vaccinated. That's, hey man, that's the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah, if you love freedom that much, you can have the freedom to go live under a rock in the woods all by yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like the reality is we uh, we live in a civilized society in theory. And what is the one of the defining characteristics uh, characteristics of civilization is some presence of a social contract. Right. We each give up some component of our individual freedom to do whatever the heck we want in exchange for material benefits, safety, community, etc. Right. Like this is an idea that's literally as old as human beings are. <laughs> OK. And these nut jobs on the you know, on the right wing who are talking just crazy about it's my choice, this and that, um, you know, your hypocrisy is ridiculous and I'm not here for it. And the reality is nothing in our society works that way, which is why I can't go and punch you all in the face right now.
Okay? Not saying I should, but like, <laughs> you know. No one you who's watching our show be... or listening to our show <laughs> deserves that. But other people, yeah. perhaps. Right. You know, you would want there to be some uh, protection from just being randomly punched in the face, right, um, by other people giving up their freedom in exchange for safety and security. This is no different. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeff, we have another story to get to. Who we got next on the roster? All right, Manuel. Next up on the roster is the Tweens. The Tweens. The Tweens. That's... That sounds like an age group that I try to try to stay away from. I teach juniors and seniors for a reason. Uh. And um, just in my head, I know, you know, shout out to all you middle school teachers and, you know, folks with with young ones. And I'm not going to lie, I'm, I'm prejudiced against that age group. I just feel like there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And I, I ain't got the patience for it. There's a lot there. This, uh, you realize this is going to be a scandal now, right? Um, next, next time a, a ninth grader gets, gets in trouble at uh, your school, it's going to be like, uh, teacher admits prejudice against, <laughs> against uh, younger students, more, more at 11. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you are correct. I might uh, I, need to edit that part out. No, I love all kids, all age groups. <laughs> I'll teach any grade. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, so, yes, you are correct. The tweens, we are referring to those lovely young people who are, um, you know, not quite little kids and not quite fully adolescents. Um, those, those middle year, middle school aged children here, Manuel. Um, and, you know, I think it's fair to say working with them is a bit of a, an acquired taste. I think, I think that's fair to say. Uh, but let's, let's jump into this story here. Uh, this story comes to us by Kelly Field in the Heckinger Report. And over the last two decades, several urban school districts, including Baltimore, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Milwaukee, New Orleans, New York, and Philly, have shuttered some middle schools and converted elementary schools into K-8 schools. Proponents of K-8 or elementals, as they are sometimes called, say that they promote strong relationships between not only teachers and students, but also teachers and parents, and offer stability to young teens during a tumultuous time in their lives. They argue that early adolescence, a period marked by more rapid physical and cognitive development than any stage other than the first two years of life, is a terrible time to transition to a new school. The research comparing outcomes of students at K-8 versus middle schools remains inconclusive, however. While some studies have shown that students who move to a middle school experience steeper declines in academic achievement than those who stay put, other research has found few differences between the groups. What we now understand to be junior high actually came into existence around 1910 for 7th through ninth graders, but it quickly became clear that the junior highs weren't living up to their promise. Instead of serving as a bridge to high school, they were operating as mini high schools with little attention paid to adolescents' unique needs. In about the 1960s, dissatisfaction with the junior high model, along with overcrowding in elementary schools, led to pushing sixth graders up into what would then become the modern sixth through eighth middle school. Between about 1970 and 1980, the number of middle schools tripled across the country, while the number of junior highs shrank by a quarter. Even with the recent resurgence of K-8 uh, schools, middle schools outnumber these elementals in the United States by a factor of two to one. 
Researchers have found that district decisions about K-8 versus middle schools continue to be made largely for pragmatic or budgetary reasons and are only rooted superficially in adolescent development needs. So, Manuel, the title of this article, which I probably should have said at the beginning, was was uh, good, good clickbait for whatever editor uh, came up with that. And the title was, uh, can we solve middle school or can we fix middle school by getting rid of it? Right. And so you have these movements of like, well, let's, you know, let's go to a K to eight model. We'll sort of keep kids in the, you know, more of an elementary, um, you know, nurturing space before transitioning to high school. Um, and I think it's fair to say mostly across the board in this country, middle school is the, the period of education that people, uh, you know, are frustrated with most. It's where a lot of our, you know, data stagnates most. Uh, excuse me, it's where a lot of our highest need students often, you know, not only stagnate, but slip in terms of, you know, reading levels and other sorts of things. So um, there's a lot of drama out there <laughs> about middle school, Manuel. And um, I know you're a high school teacher. I know you're, a, a, I believe, a, a noted public hater of middle school <laughs> students. Um, so as a hater, what what do you have to say about this matter? Yeah, this is an interesting article with an interesting headline. Kind of seems like hashtag like abolish middle school type of situation here. Um, it's fascinating to me. This is a long read as far as like education articles go. So we're going to link it below this video or below this podcast if you're listening, because it really dives deep into the history of what we now know as middle schools and just how the research has wavered back and forth in terms of what's the best model. And to me, that's what stood out most in the story is that the research has wavered back and forth for decades about which structure is the best structure. And one thing that this article led me to think about is when it comes to what's considered to be the strength of these elementals, which is a such a cute name. I don't know why that name, elementals, <laughs> just sounds so cute. Like, uh. but what strikes me as like the some of the main arguments for the the value of those elementals is the the familiarity and the community and the closeness with teachers during that very rough time that really rough um developmental age that kind of sounds like the same arguments for you know when we when jeff uh, when you and I entered the profession and a lot of that philanthropic 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 but I can't, all that big money from the gates <laughs> and all them folks was going towards creating these, these, you know, so-called small learning communities or these, you know, schools within a school for that closeness, for that community. And I think one clear, like something everybody could agree on probably is that the stronger the relationships and the more tight knit the learning community, um, the better for, for the young people. But the thing about it is these elementals, one thing about it is that for some students, that is a loving community that they want to remain a part of. But for others, elementary school was not a great experience. And going off to a different middle school is a fresh start where the, the social pecking order and all that stuff perhaps uh, could be reset. So so I think, you know, it really depends on the the students, the the population and sort of their their experience in their in their elementary grades or whatever. And middle school itself. One thing that's pointed out in the article is that like at that age, that's where young people are most craving connection and autonomy. And we shuffle them from 
elementary directly into a middle school where now instead of one homeroom all day, they have all these different periods that they're shuffled to during these passing uh, during these passing periods and no more recess, no more free unstructured time for them to whatever. Now it's all like so rigid and that perhaps is, is a challenge for young people as well. This article certainly doesn't let us know what the best model is because there's no agreement on what the best model is. For me as a teacher, as a high school teacher, it just seems that no matter what the structure, no matter how we play around with like, you know, grade levels and groupings and all that, what matters most is that the teachers and staff, the adults that are there are really, really in tune with the students that they have and really in tune what challenges might be happening among students or what uh, challenges students might be facing. To me, regardless of if it's a, a two-year middle school, my my middle school was like a seven, eight middle school or one of these six, seven, eight ones or a Ella middle straight into high school, no matter what, the adults and the staff there need to be really finally in tune with the young people that they have and be responsible to those young people's needs because uh, research doesn't suggest like the, the actual grade level groupings is is really the big uh, significant determinant of how well these students do. So that's my thinking. Um, but again, I teach 11th graders and 12th graders. So I'm not going to pretend to know anything about what's <laughs> best for these middle schools. Uh. I, I appreciate uh, a lot of what you said there, Manuel. And I, um, what I found interesting about this article, it really is fascinating. So I, I, I echo what you said, encouraging folks to uh, click below and, and read it yourself. Um, but what seemed to be largely left out of the conversation was actually the model that was much more popular in, in New York City um, and was the model of the school that I was a principal of, which is a six, grade six to 12 model, right? So I don't know. It's like a Ella, Ella high uh, instead That's of a not Ella as middle cute sounding at uh, all. Or it's a, not a middle, as cute. middle high. I don't I messed it up, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing, man. I, I think the reality is the actual problem we have with middle school in this country, in particular, middle school in context where we are serving the most marginalized students. So students right. living in poverty, students experiencing a lot of you know, effects of racism and oppression in this country. Um, the problem isn't are the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders with the little kids or the big kids or by themselves. That's not actually the issue. I would argue that I think a 612 or a K to eight model is a better look than a fully independent middle school because that developmental stage um, is so, um, there's such a social awakening for students, right? Um, that expand that starts to expand um, much more broadly outside of the the nuclear family, right, or the extended family uh, unit that students are a part of. Um, you know, kids are old enough to like take the bus and and you know ride their bike across town and like go experience life outside of home with some more independence and in a much different way than they are in younger elementary school. Um, and I think given that they need either and benefit from either the experience of being the like old dogs on campus, right? Like you're the eighth grader, you have to be a good model for the first graders or, you know, that sort of um, sort of a social dynamic. Or they need to be, you know, in the 612 model where you can have like, you know, 11th and 12th graders um, mentoring, you know, encouraging, et cetera, the middle school students. I think that I think isolating them 
um, sets you up for some, you know, some uh, destructive potential because they don't have the sort of mentoring role in place and they also don't have the examples to look to um, for the older students in the immediate school context. That said, to me, that's much less the issue. The real issue is what are we doing with middle school kids all day? And I have long said, Manuel, if I could, if I could be king of the world for a day and recreate what middle school looks like, here's what middle school would be for me. Okay, it would be um, the, the first three hours of the day. What we would do is um, get all the kids, bring a couple of things with us, and we'd go hike up a mountain, right? If you live in a flat part of the country, then we'd walk around the biggest lake or <laughs> that's there or whatever, right? We'd go out into some version of nature. If that's a big park in the city, so be it. And we would do physical activity moving, walking. We might sing a couple of songs while we're walking. Um, we get to some point at the top of the mountain or a couple times around the lake where we'd pause, we'd sit down, we'd do some reflection, a little bit of writing, maybe listen to some music. We'd have a little, you know, small group discussion about it, and then we'd hike back down. Then we would have uh, like two hours of structured academic class, okay? Two hours, maybe three max. Then we would have activities, clubs, PE, sports, etc. That's what we would do every single day. And our big goal for the three years of middle school would be, um, are you yourself a good person? Are you kind and decent to other people? Do you like yourself? Have you found something about yourself that you value, that you appreciate, that you see beauty in? And have you been able to find some talent Something you're, you know, whether that's um, I am really good at, you know, playing Pokemon Go or I am really good at ice skating, whatever it is. Have you found some talent that you have been able to identify, pour yourself into and cultivate? That would be how we would measure success in middle school. That would be what we would do with kids all day long. And I think the reality is we are trying to do the wrong stuff in middle school because because kids are not. Uh, uh, developmentally at a space at that point in time where they should be sitting down in a classroom all day long. They are struggling to figure out their own identity. They are struggling to figure out how they stack up and sort of fit in with their peers, right? And we, we have so little in the curriculum and in the space of the day to support them with the fundamental you know, developmental issues that they are grappling with at that point in time, which is, I think, where a lot of the tension comes and a lot of the, you know, negative, more destructive behaviors that we sometimes see in middle school um, start to manifest because we're not actually supporting what their primary developmental needs are at that point in time. Well, that's a wonderful vision, Jeff. I do like that vision. I struggle to understand how hiking in the morning is going to help us uh, address the learning loss in this pandemic, unless they're, of course, hiking while doing some math. Um, oh, God. You're so right. I, I'm, right. I'm, 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 but I, I agree, the, the, the real issue, the real question here is, is what are we doing and what are their experiences during that age? Uh, that's more important than you know, the structural grouping of whether or not they're attached to an elementary school or a high school or completely independent. I think that the, the experience that they're having, of course, trumps whatever um, structure we have in place, I think. Anyways, though, Jeff, um, there's a lot 
going on in the world of education. And that was just two headlines that we could talk about on and on and on uh, because there's so much there to unpack. But we have a guest who we're about to have a conversation with about a new book that she wrote, which helps us actually, speaking of your vision for middle school, helps us envision what an ideal classroom climate looks like for these young people as they explore who they are, their value, their interactions with others, and what they bring to the table. So that book is Textured Teaching by Lorena Hurdeman, who is up next in our seminar. Stay tuned. Jeff, Jeff, man, why, why are you buying my style, man? You got the same shirt I, I have on. Yeah, your style, I've I been had this shirt, man. Like I told you I was wearing the blue shirt today. Dude, you got a lot of blue shirts. You wear a blue shirt damn near every day. You didn't say you were gonna wear a Teach the Truth shirt. I'm wearing my Teach the Truth shirt. Why are you trying to be like me, man? Hey, listen, man, I went to aotashow.com slash support, right? Went to that merch store, got all the good, all the above show gear, all of it, right there, one button, no problem. aotashow.com slash support. Well, damn, that's the same place I went to get mine. So yeah, that's... Coincidence, coincidence, aotashow.com slash support. Hit the button. Get some dope AOTA show merchandise. Yeah, man. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us. And it is my distinct pleasure uh, to welcome to all of the above, all the way from Tampa, Florida, uh, really just an incredible guest and someone who's going to help us unpack some of the most pressing issues on, I think, everyone's mind today around how we can create and foster and really bring to life culturally sustaining classrooms for our youth. Uh, we have none other than Lorena Herman. Uh, welcome, Lorena, to all the above. And me, very excited to be here. All right, let me tell you a little bit more about Lorena. Lorena Herman is a Dominican-American educator focused on anti-racist and anti-bias work in education. She earned her master's degree at Middlebury College's Breadloaf School of English. She's a two-time nationally awarded educator who has been featured in newspapers and journals such as the New York Times, NCTE Journals, Ed Week, The National Writing Project, and Embracing Equity. She previously published the Anti-Racist Teacher Reading Instruction Workbook and now has a forthcoming book titled Textured Teaching, a framework for culturally sustaining practices which explores curriculum development focused on social justice. She's a co-founder of Disrupt Text and Multicultural Classroom. Additionally, she is the Director of Pedagogy at Educolor and is also the Chair of the National Council of Teachers of English Committee Against Racism and Bias in the Teaching of English. Welcome again, Lorena, to all the above, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, we got Lorena in the building. Thank you so much for being here. And before, before we even jump into it, I just want to point out that I most recently saw you delivering a keynote at the Educolor virtual summit. So shout out to, to Educolor and everybody involved. And that was a very moving keynote about textured teaching. And the book, I ordered it. I, I have it on the way. I can't wait for it to get here. The cover is super dope. When I went to the website, the Heinemann website about the book, there's also a little intro video. It's like a 30 second intro video that is like 
super, super dope. Like the music and all that, just just fantastic. So please tell us a bit about texture teaching. What What is texture teaching? And if we were to step into a classroom that is using this style of pedagogy, what are some things that we would see in that classroom? Yeah, so... Um yeah, that video is is fun, right? It took a minute for us to find the music that, that music I is so felt, dope. right? The music that I was like, this is more of the vibe, right? <laughs> this is more of the energy. Um, so texture teaching is a framework. What that means is, is that it's a set of strategies. It's a way to teach. It is how I have essentially taken the the stance the theory of culturally sustaining pedagogy and turned it into classroom practice after you know whatever it is i've been i've been in the classroom for 11 years so you know i didn't start in my classroom doing this obviously because everybody grows and you learn and you make all kinds of mistakes years one and two and three <laughs> um and then eventually i learned about culturally sustaining pedagogy and it changed everything changed the whole game for me um, and then the quest became, how, wh what does that look like in practice? And so, you know, after, I don't know, a bunch of years, I was like, let me just, let me start writing this down. Let me start processing and thinking through what it is that I'm doing. And then that's how we got to this book. Um, and so texture teaching is a framework for how to embody and teach in a culturally sustaining way. What does it look like? Um, it's very dynamic. Um, it's, it's messy. And I say messy with quotation marks because I don't mean like disorganized or dirty. I, I mean, it, it doesn't look like necessarily kids sitting in rows looking at the front of the desk, right? Neatly working on a piece of paper, writing a thing. Um, it might look like in the corner there's a group of kids working in a, on a project and over here they're doing something else and there's two kids in the hallway and you're conferencing with three at your desk, right? And that's what I mean. And there's talking and it, it seems like someone who walks in might be like, what's going on here? But you've got the pulse and every kid can tell you what they're doing effectively and why they're doing it and where they are in a process of learning, you know? So, yeah, it looks like being really flexible, flexible with your assignments, flexible even with the way you use the room, flexible seating, sure. But like, you know, sometimes, you know, what some teachers have done, and I'm sure y'all, you know, have seen this or at least can imagine it, right? Where like they, all they did was change those hard desks for a bubble seat. Like we're still doing the same thing, you just in a bubble seat, <laughs> right? So, you know, I, I don't want to bring it down to, oh, it's just about flexible seating. It's really about being flexible with learning, with the process. It requires grace and mercy. Um, you know, it requires making mistakes and being like, yeah, let's just try that again. Like, let's do it over, you know? Um, texture teaching is also interdisciplinary. So there's four pillars, which is what I'm going over, being flexible, being interdisciplinary. Um, one of the things that I don't remember when it just kind of dawned on me, but I had a moment where for one day I was just like, wait a minute, we really do tell kids only learn math block two and then put it to the side and then go for block three and just do science. Like, <laughs> and that's it. I'm just supposed to turn my math brain off and turn my science brain off. And then they wonder later why students are not making connections. Right. And seeing a through line in their learning across their different classes. Um, and so it's interdisciplinary. It's also experiential. It's also about 
moving even outside of those four walls, like looking at my city, at my community, at my country, you know, at my backyard, whatever it is, as part of my classroom. Um, And then it's also student-driven and community-centered. And so, you know, allowing student needs, allowing allowing student voice and student desires to drive how you plan and design. Um, And then community-centered is also really important because it's, you know, for example... I was working with a school, um, and I think I talked about this in my in my keynote, Manuel. Uh, you know, I was working with a school who was 30 minutes away from the Derek Chauvin trial, right, as it was happening. And so they couldn't just be like, yeah, no, I, I'm not talking about it. I'm not bringing it up. Like, you, you just physically can't because there's tension. Everybody's feeling something. Kids got questions. Um, and so that doesn't mean your whole lesson becomes that, but at least a pulse, right? A check-in. Um, and so with texture teaching, you do a pulse, you do a check-in, but also, you know, what's going on in your community is also part of the classroom learning. You know, like if gentrification is an issue in your community, then maybe that's going to be one of your units this year. Then maybe that's a lens through which you make sense of one of the stories that you're teaching, or it becomes how you teach you know, whatever in science or in math or in history, you know? So in short, <laughs> that's um, kind of what it looks like in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lorena, before you came on the episode, I was reading through the, um, the preview of the book that Heinemann has um, online. And I think you used in there um, in the foreword or one of the earlier parts of the book, um, like this metaphor of t- of texture teaching being like the the sort of backside of a woven um, you know uh, of a woven fabric that you know can look messy and scattered and there's knots and you know um, overlapping things um, but that that is the the kind of messy substance that creates the beauty. Um, that that you see on the other side, and I'm sure you said that much more eloquently than than I, mean, I that just said it. Pretty there. good. That sounded pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but as you were talking, that was sort of resonating with me. The you know just the experience as as a former administrator and and really you know honing my lens to think about like what is what is the good messiness that we want to see. Um, in our classrooms, uh, as opposed to just the, you know, the, the messiness that's not about, you know, constructing something, but that's just disorderly, right? There's the, the, the messiness that comes with creativity and genius and beauty, right? And joy. Um, and so anyways, you're, you're really pushing my, my thinking about that there for sure. Um, for other folks like myself, especially folks who may be administrators or um, policy, uh, folks in policy positions who hear what you said, um, who, you know, read your book and are thinking like, how, how can we implement this in our context? What uh, kinds of, you know, words of advice or guidance might you offer folks about how to, you know, take what you're describing in textured teaching and, and move forward with um, applying it to their own context? Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to talk to teachers for a second just because the, the whole book is for teachers. <laughs> so, you know, I'm intrigued by that question of, you know, what what is the role of administrators in, in this? And I think that, um, well, not I don't think, I believe <laughs> that administrators have a very important role in the implementation of texture teaching in schools because part of what texture teaching is is, is a push for reimagining 
the way school functions daily. And, and part of the administrator's role is to oversee that, right? Is to manage that, is to provide the resources for that and the support for that, for the, for the daily functioning of school. And so I know that I would have benefited in my first several years, uh, um, I would have benefited from sitting with an administrator saying to me, what's the dream? What is, what is something you've never thought of that you would love to do? Like, let's, let's dream together. Let's brainstorm. Let's think out of the box. What is one way to drive lessons home for your young people in here? You know, like something as simple as, I mean, it literally just never occurred to me. Like, let me just go and have class outside. Right. And, and here's the thing that matters because a, it's a change of scenery. How many of us would sometimes be like, yo, let's just take PD outside. Like, oh, let's just move to another classroom because you just, it's stuffy. You're stuck being in that room. You're tired. Like, let's just switch it up, right? Um, and it just didn't occur to me because of the rigidity of the expectation. The expectation was you're in this room. You got these desks. Your, your desk is in the front. Sage on the stage. Show, show that you know what you're doing through direct instruction. That model can't really function outside on the benches. Whereas other types, other moments, right, where kids are working together, even direct instruction, some of that stuff can happen in other spaces. All of that is to say that, you know, I think administrators have a really great opportunity to support teachers in dreaming and thinking out of the box and in helping them meet the needs of the very unique group of kids in front of them. Um, we need policymakers to do two things. It's going to sound a little harsh. <laughs> one of them, one of them is to release the funds right? Release that money. And, and why? Because it just shouldn't be that, that so many public school teachers, for example, just lack access to material things. I've taught in a public school and I've taught in a private school and the access to things at the private school. And let me tell you, this wasn't even like a very wealthy one. This was a young private school that really didn't have the resources that some of these other top-notch schools have. But the, the immediate shift in like, oh, I just have this? I just got that like, okay, I could just drive this van whenever I want to take my class on a field trip. Like, okay, <laughs> I didn't have the same opportunities. Right. And so we need them to release that funds so that teachers can have the material things to provide these experiences. And simultaneously, we need them to butt out a little bit. Too many of them, not all, but too many of them have not spent considerable time in classrooms to be telling us what we need and how we should be doing it. You know what I mean? And even making decisions about education. So we need folks in there who've been in the classroom or at least folks who are humble enough to listen to those of us, right? Who don't make decisions until they've talked to us, you know? So I'll stop there, but <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. And I, I agree with, with so much of that. And I think for teachers, especially younger, younger teachers or, or newer to the profession, I should say, there are a few fears that they have. One, one very common fear for, for newer teachers is that the administrator will walk by and see something that is quote unquote messy and then make judgments from that. So I think for a lot of teachers, there's trepidation in opening up space in the classroom, partially because even if certain educators do want students to, to have more space and more control of the classroom, they fear that that's like counter to what the system is supposed to be, counter to what the expectation has. 
But now, especially, we are also seeing a lot of teachers with trepidation over anything that sounds remotely connected to culture or race or any of that. So we have, of course, in the too many states, we have this backlash, this white supremacist backlash to whatever conversations were being had in the summer of 2020. And there might be a teacher, uh, uh, educator listening. Anybody that listens or watches our show pretty much understands the importance of this work and pretty much is down for that fight. But there might be somebody who's like, you know what, this really does sound dope, but if if this comes up in my classroom, some parent is going to email me about this book, and they Google Lorena Herman, and they see Disrupt Text, and then they go down that whole rabbit hole. So you are- That's right. You you, know, you, you are very experienced in the, the backlash, the, the racist backlash, and your work with Disrupt Text is just one one place in which you've, you've experienced that. So we were wondering if you could share a little bit about your experience with this backlash and how that has informed your moves in terms of making this work happen throughout, throughout the country and, and, and reaching each classroom so that we could do right by our students. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um... This, this is the first time I'm really talking about this publicly, um, you know, just because it's so complicated. Um, on one end, I don't, I'm fully aware that the backlash that I have received doesn't compare to the backlash that so many other people have received before me and even now, right? So I'm fully aware that um, it could have been worse and worse is happening and people have lost jobs, right? So like, I'm, I'm very cognizant um, that this isn't, you know, I don't know, very, very big. Um, and I also know that what we faced and that we is right, right now, what, what I'm talking about is like my family, right? Um, what we faced at the beginning of, end of last year, beginning of this year, changed the game for us, changed the game for us, you know, um, because immediately we understood how vulnerable we were on a number of layers. Like first, digitally speaking, we were like, oh, snap, like people are in our inboxes, you know, like my husband got a, a text message from a reporter who thought they were calling me like, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? Like we just realized we have a whole new layer of security that we're going to have to have for ourselves as a family. Um, and then, you know, I was, um, let me see, in January, I had just had a baby, weeks old. And so I'm like, how much more vulnerable could I be? Somebody shows up here, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to fight somebody? Um, so, you know, that was a very eye-opening um, it was a very eye-opening experience because it was the kind of stuff that you hear about happening during the civil rights movement, that people would say those types of things that people would, right? Like I had, I, I knew that stuff existed. I had heard of other people dealing with it, but it wasn't until it showed up on my own doorstep that I was like, wait a minute, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, here, here's the interesting piece. We dealt with, so much, just a lot, <laughs> emails, messages, texts, posts, comments, DMs, like all the things. And then it stopped. You want to know when it stopped? For a whole week during the insurrection. 
So they were busy. So they were busy. One and the same. It's not a Venn. It's one circle. And then it picked right back up when the intervention was over. And for me, what that did was not only can, do I know who these people are, <laughs> right? Right. But like, y'all really, y'all really are a mob. And so I ended up dealing with a whole bunch of anxiety from it because I was like, you know, I, I feel like I should actually be afraid. I should actually be afraid because look at what y'all did to that building and cops and legitimate humans in front of you. Who am I in, in, in front of all of that? I'm nothing compared to any of that, right? Like if you don't respect none of that, then you sure won't respect me and my family, you know? So all of that is to say that, um, you know, the backlash was intense. Um, and then, you know, my husband and I had a conversation because I was like, you know what? Like I could just kind of pause. Like, I don't, I don't have to do this, <laughs> right? Like I don't have to, I could just, you know, even pause this book. Um, you know, I could just legitimately pause everything and shut down and let this just ride and, and then could reconsider, reevaluate, like maybe step back from disrupt text. Like I really did consider for a whole day, like, let me think about this for a whole day. Cause maybe this, maybe this ain't worth it. Right. Um, and he just said to me, and then what are you going to do? And I was like, well, you know, I'll go back to the classroom. He was like, no, no, no. But are you, are you not going to teach truth in the classroom? Are you not going to teach about race and justice? I was like, well, no, I am. He was like, so then you'll face it there. And I was like, well, I guess. And he was like, so then we don't stop because you're not going to stop. And what are we going to succumb to fear? You know, so he kind of went into his whole <laughs> TV slow clap coach, you know, moment. <laughs> and, um, you know, I appreciate him because he kind of helped me bring it back and, and remember why I did it in the first place. And, and, you know, just because the monster's here doesn't mean we stop. That's when you slay the monster, you know. Um, and I guess that that's, that's my... That's my takeaway. And that's also what I want to share with teachers, right? Like we are in, in a difficult and challenging time, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to practice what we preach. The goal is not to get fired. I am not calling out anybody like you go in there and you do it anyway. You get fired because then it defeats the purpose. Then we can't do the work we're trying to actually do in schools. So I'm not at all suggesting, and it might require some compromising, some negotiating, like, okay, fine. I won't use that word, but I'm still doing the thing. I'm going to just use a different word, right? Like figuring it out, but still teaching truth. You know, I, I, um, I think about, you know, stories of, of villains and heroes and how sometimes the way that people won wasn't it, it wasn't this grandiose wrestled him to the ground but like it was just that they used the trick in the fight you know like i'm thinking of black panther and that last scene it, it wasn't this massive he came with all the bullets and stood there and shot him like in the wild west like he just flipped he just flipped the knife you know and that's how he wins and so you know, this this doesn't have to be, again, something that gets you fired or in the news and you're out here taking the charge and you're the next MLK in of education. Like, it might just be small, subversive um, teaching of truth with your students. Maybe it's a, a club that you start after school and that's your way, right? You know, you're, you're not allowed for whatever reason. You're in a very oppressive school or district. You don't have support of your admin. We'll figure out how it's going to work there, but you don't stop. 
You know, you don't stop. Yeah. I, I would uh, just like to call out this moment in all the above history where I think this will be our first um, Black Panther uh, movie citation um, in, a, in a discussion, which I which I appreciate. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that gift to the show. Um, and I, I wanted to um, actually ask you a follow up on this as well, Lorena, and kind of um, scratch scratch the surface a little bit, because you know, I, I'm wondering if you can share um, either from your own experience or just your own thoughts about the importance of organizing and strength of strength in numbers in terms of continuing to do the work that you were just naming around, you know, um, standing courageously in the face of racist backlash and racist policy that's looking to outlaw the teaching of truth. Um, but you know, how folks can, how you, or how you would, you would offer that folks could, um, you know, take advantage of strength in numbers, right? Collective organizing and, um, and not just being a, a solo practitioner, you know, facing this on your own. No, I mean, we, we're not going to make it alone. <laughs> we're not going to make it alone. We have to have collective organizing. We have to have a community to sustain ourselves. Um, and, and you know, that can be hard when you're in, like, let's say you're the one teacher at this rural school, right? That is hard work. Um, that is exhausting. And it, it, quite frankly, that could be dangerous, right? So a teacher in that context, like, by all means, your physical safety is very important and that's your priority um, because you alone aren't going to be the change. You're not going to bring about the change. Nobody did it alone. Nobody has ever done it alone, right? Jesus had 12. <laughs> uh, MLK never did it alone. He had not just a crew, like multiple organizations came together. It wasn't even just him. It was organizations. So, you know, you, you have to depend on squad. You have to have a crew. And if it isn't at your building, then maybe it's in your district. And if it's not in your district, then maybe it's not even educators. Maybe it's your cousins. Maybe it's folks doing the same work at their respective jobs, right? Like your friend is an accountant and she's doing it over there. And your friend is a plumber and he's doing in the plumbers union, you know, and y'all come together and you, and you continue to strengthen each other. Um, and if you can, for sure, you start to, to shift culture in your own school, find ways and build community. Like it's, we're not going to do it alone. And it's that, and it's that mentality though, Jeffrey, like that's such an important question because when folks are trying to be the hero, you know, when you're trying, even if you have good intentions, you're trying to be the hero, you're going to fall flat on your face and it's not going to work. And you're going to lose the people that would have joined you. But it's like, wait a minute, Jeffrey's just he always speaking up during the staff meeting. He's trying to shine. He's trying to be in the limelight. And like, it's so obvious, right? It becomes so obvious that, that Jeffrey ain't actually doing it. He's doing it for himself. And so ain't nobody trying to join that kind of movement, you know? And if they are, then it's the wrong person because all they want is the limelight with you. And that's just not going to work, right? You can't have two people in the limelight. Um, so if you're, if you are like, I need to bring about change in this school and I'm the only one, well, guess what? Your curriculum might not be the place to start. It might be your colleagues. It might be your department. It might be your grade level team. It might just be your administrator. You know, um, we, the, all, the steps don't always got to be big. That's what I meant earlier, right? Like what are the little things you can start with? 
And if your school is one of those that has already done the work, you have an anti-racist committee and you, you know, like all of the, the performative stuff has happened. I'm calling it performative, even if it isn't, but it might feel that way, right? Because you're like, we've been stuck here for two years. Then maybe you're at performance level stuck. <laughs> um, and so if you're in a place like that, all right, well, what, what are the needles there that you got to move? What are those little steps that you got to take? Um, and it's not about... You know, because I know one of the pushback or some of the critique is like, well, I don't want to keep going slow. How many times do I got to go slow? You know, I want to do all the things. Let's bring about all the change. And and I mean, that's just not even realistic, right? Like, first of all, we're talking about a system that began with the foundation of what is this nation. So, like, we're not going to undo it in a year. <laughs> we're not going to undo it with a march. We're not going to undo it with not even one or a series of PDs in a school. So, you know, it's going to take time. Plus, it takes time in ourselves when we're trying to make a change. It is not true that all of a sudden you became woke one day and now you understand all of the things. This is a continuum. This is a pro I'm learning. I am still learning, right? Everybody is still learning. I, I have relationships with the people that we all look up to, like Dr. Django Paris, right? Who who is who coined and came up with culturally sustaining pedagogy and him and I will talk and, and he was like, yeah, I'm still learning about this thing over here. I'm still learning about that thing. And I'm like, shoot, the day he's done learning, that's when I have hope that I might, I might be done one day. But he's like, never, ever. We never done learning, you know? So, you know, I want folks to extend others the same grace that they would appreciate it be extended to them. Um, because that's that's part of being in community, right? That's part of that collective organizing. That's a word right there. That's a word right there. And I know a lot of folks who are watching or listening, that right there resonates because we are up, up against so much right now. And I'm glad that you pointed out that the, the vitriol that you were experiencing around Disrupt Text, how that went a little quiet during the insurrection because it was, it was the same actors, it was the same folks. And I could only imagine a lot of those same folks are also the same folks we've seen storming school board meetings around critical race theory or storming school board meetings around masks as, you know, same group, so many different issues, same overall message, which is we want things done our way, the way it's always been done. And anybody else is, is getting in the way of that, they need to fall back in line. So I love that you pointed that all out. And I love that the book is really directed directly at teachers because as difficult as, as it is to be a teacher, a lot of times the, the theory and the discussions and the themes and all that resonates, but like, what do I do the next morning with my students and how, what's this look like in my classroom is, is the challenge for a lot of folks. So I really look forward to a lot of folks getting the book. We'll put the links underneath this episode for sure to Texture Teaching and also to the anti-racist workbook that you compiled as well. And I can't stress enough the importance of us being in this together, that collective part and that acknowledgement that this, this isn't gonna go away in a day. This is this is a, a marathon that, that we're fighting and we'll do it together um, by any means. So I appreciate you so much for sharing all that with our audience. All right, folks, underneath this episode, all the links to all the dope work that Lorena does. So links to Disrupt Texts, to the books, to Multicultural Classroom, all that. So check it out. And also, um, Lorena, where could folks find you if they're like, yo, I just, I love her work. I want to, you know, see what else is up and, and, and what, what, what direction should we point folks to who want to learn a little bit more? 
Yeah, for sure. Well, they can follow me on Twitter um, at Nena Herman. I tweet a lot about education there um, and also some random non-education hot takes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I keep it pretty education focused. Um, they can also find Multicultural Classroom on Instagram and on Facebook. And there we share a lot of, um, we do a lot of teaching on there, to be quite honest. We share a lot of resources. We share a lot of tips and strategies and just stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's where folks can find me. Dope, dope. All right, folks, that about does it for today's seminar. Up next is class dismissed. Let's take a look at some, some good news happening in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we've reached that time in the episode where we like to pause and give some, some flowers, some love, some shout outs to people doing good things in the world of education. That's right. It's our class dismissed time. Uh, Manuel, who we got for today? Yeah, Jeff, today we got a, a young black genius. Hashtag black girl magic. This is JJ Patton, a young computer coder who's doing great things in the in the in the realm of STEM. And she's only 16 years old, Jeff. So this uh, 16-year-old coder uh, who goes by the name JJ, uh, JJ Patton, she drew national acclaim four years ago when she and her father created an app designed to connect incarcerated parents with their children. And she's back at it now as the focus of a new film chronicling her mission to make coding more accessible to young women of color. When she was a toddler, JJ's father, Antoine, went to prison for more than seven years. After her father's release, they grew close through coding and created Photo Patch, which is an app that allows children to communicate with incarcerated parents through photos and letters. And because of her previous experience with her father, JJ understood that the, the consequences and struggles of, of staying in communication and, and bonding with an incarcerated parent are, are really, really paramount. And she took what she learned from that experience to co-found an organization, a nonprofit that she calls Unlock Academy. She co-founded it with her father and Unlock Academy is a nonprofit that she started with him to inspire young people of color to learn to code. Her story is now chronicled in a short film series from Hewlett Packard. Oh, do they still call it Hewlett Packard from HP? Called yes. Generation Impact. And in an interview with The 74, she said, quote, in school, there was no technology or coding classes, which drove me to want to learn more and be somebody who can teach other women of color, girls, and people who don't have the opportunity to learn this important skill. So shout out to this young educator, 16 years old, and she's like, look, not enough schools are doing this, especially in marginalized communities, especially for our, our, our young black girls. So let me make it happen. So shout out to JJ Patton for sure. Yeah, yeah, I will officially co-sign on that. Love it. Love the, you know, the the brilliance and genius on display, and also the you know the foundation of her work in connecting uh, children with incarcerated parents is so huge because we put up so many barriers there that are just deeply harmful to young people. Um, so that that's a beautiful, beautiful story, man. Love it. Um, as as the final piece of today's class dismissed, we also want to say um, just a, a fond farewell and a rest in peace to uh, really someone who's who's been a giant in um, in the field of education uh, for quite some time now. Uh, folks may have heard that uh, James Lowen, 
uh, Professor James Lowen, author of the book Lies My Teacher Told Me, um, just recently passed away uh, at the age of 79. Um, professor Lowen was a professor emeritus at the University of Vermont, um, although he lived down in the Washington, D.C. era area. Um, and certainly had a big impact on, on me because one of the texts um, that I first read in early in college that actually inspired me to want to become a teacher and want to become an educator um, was Lies My Teacher Told Me. And I, I used, um, you know, certainly content and elements um, from that book about, you know, um, all of the things he was uncovering through a longitudinal analysis of textbooks, of history textbooks in the United States and the ways in which those textbooks told lies. Um, to generations of children um, and buried America's history of racism and manifest destiny, um, you know, told outright, you know, untrue information about, you know, Christopher Columbus and where he did and did not go and, and the results uh, of his, you know, his uh, quote unquote exploration. Um, and so um, all kinds of good information in that book. I would definitely encourage folks to read it um, if you haven't seen it. And um, James Lowen said that um, in a 2018 interview with NPR, he said that the inspiration for Lies My Teacher Told Me came while he was teaching at uh, Historically Black College, uh, Tougaloo College in Mississippi, um, and asked his students for their thoughts on uh, Reconstruction. Um, and it was an aha experience for him because 16 out of my 17 students, he said, um, said, well, Reconstruction was the period right after the Civil War when blacks took over the government of the southern states, but they were too soon out of slavery. So they screwed up and white folks had to take control again. Um, and that and that was uh, a huge awakening moment for him about the power of teaching truth um, in America's public schools and uh, perhaps. You know, ironically, um, we are at the moment of his passing um, again in a period of real reckoning around this issue of, of teaching truth in America's public schools and what that does to uh, to young people um, and to us collectively. So rest in peace, uh, Professor James Lowen. Thank you for your, your years of good work in the field. Um, and certainly that that legacy will live on. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Rest in peace. And. <clears throat> Now more than ever, the importance of teaching truth in the classroom, man. We see this weaponization against it, and um, we will push through that. We go push through that together. But folks, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. We very much appreciate you listening and or watching and, and being part of our AOTA family. Remember aotashow.com for links to everything, including links to our our Teach the Truth T-shirts. And um, yeah, hang in there, folks. We're gonna we're gonna get through this together and make a better world for everybody. All right, folks, that about does it for today. We'll catch you next time.